0: If you'd like to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1, that is going to be our main scripture passage for this morning, one of the, the primary texts that we're going to be consulting. I know we are in the middle of a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians, and Lord willing, we will return to that next Sunday. But for today, we have a standalone sermon. On the topic of worship, we're going to be looking at 1st Corinthians, or excuse me, 1st 1 1 Leviticus. We're going to be looking at Leviticus. <laughs> we're not going to be looking at 1st Corinthians. Leviticus and the Gospel of John, and we're going to be talking about the, the topic of worship. The The elders for the past year, several months, have been examining the topic of worship. They've been doing independent study. They've been doing some reading. They've been listening to, to MP3 sermons, to, to teaching. They've even gone on a field trip to a, a, another church that has used the, and applied the regulative principle of, of worship in order to gain a better understanding of what biblical worship looks like. And so this morning, we're looking at these two primary texts. We're going to be exploring this topic. And then starting next Sunday, that Sunday school class will begin. It will run for four weeks And it will be on the topic of worship. It will be taught by the elders. So if you'd like to follow along, you can look at uh, Leviticus chapter 1. But we'll be moving through that rather quickly. Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we come in faith and we come expectantly. We want to see the main point of this passage. We also want to to understand what you're you're trying to teach us through your word. So we open up our hearts and our minds. We open up ourselves for correction. We open up ourselves for instruction. Because we love you. And we want to, to follow you and worship you in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an older couple that had retired several years ago and they finally had an opportunity to take the vacation of a lifetime and they were in Hawaii and they were walking along the beach at sunset. And as they were walking along, they saw a couple of other couples. They saw one couple uh, playing frisbee and and laughing and and running around and, and, and jumping in the sand. And then they saw another couple, and they were standing kind of out in the waves, uh, kind of chest deep, and they were letting the waves wash over them, and they were talking and and just enjoying the ocean and the beach at sunset. And the husband looked at these, these younger couples, and he looked at his wife, and he reflected on their years together, and he looked at his wife and said, are you still glad that you married me? And she said, of course. What kind of a question is that? And he said, well, you know, When we were married, I I had a really fast car, and I think you you liked that, and that was one thing that attracted you to me. And she said, yeah, I liked your car, but that doesn't matter. And he said, well, you know, in 87, the business went under. We had to sell it. We never really recovered. I I used to have a lot more money. we, We used to have a lot more in the bank. And she said, that doesn't matter either. And then he looked at some of the younger couples and some of the guys and then he looked at his own body and he said, well, I, I'm not really built like I used to be built. And my, my hair is, is kind of gone. And she said, stop, none of that matters. I still love you. And she said, what about me? My, my health has declined significantly in the last five years. Does that matter to you? And he said, of course not. She said, okay. So they went back to the hotel room. She said, I think I need to lay down for a little bit. And he said, all right. And he grabbed the keys and he made his way for the door. And he said, I'm going to run to the grocery store. I'm going to get a few things. And she said, hold on a second. Where are you going? And it was their custom and and habit that whenever someone left the house, they would always go to the other person, give them a quick kiss and say, I love you. And so the husband turned around and and walked back and, and he did that. And she said, hey, that still matters. None of that other stuff matters, but but don't stop doing that. That still matters to me. The worship of God by God's people still matters. How God's people worship God still matters. There would be some professing believers today that would say something like, God gave instructions to Israel on how to worship, but under the New Covenant, it doesn't really matter how believers worship the Lord. The only thing that matters in worship today is a person's heart and their sincerity. In fact, they would question the existence of any biblical principles or standards that God has given to govern and direct his church's worship of him. But the truth is that how God's people worship God still matters. It's kind of like the I love you. Don't stop doing that. Don't stop paying attention to God's word when it comes to worshiping God. Like I mentioned a moment ago, our primary text is going to be from Leviticus. And it's going to be Leviticus chapter 1 through Leviticus chapter 10 verse 2. We're not going to read the entire nine plus chapters of Leviticus this morning, but I am going to give the immediate biblical context of that scripture passage along with some sample verses that will help us see the bigger and connected picture of Leviticus 1 through ten two, and it goes together, and we're going to see that. Hopefully we can all be on the same page after we get through this. So we're reminded, even before we get to the book of Leviticus, we're reminded of the book of Exodus. And remember, the book of Exodus tells the account of how God delivered his people out of Egypt and led them into the wilderness and ultimately to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God delivered his covenant instructions to his people through Moses, God's designated mediator between the people of God and God himself. Part of these instructions include detailed instructions on how to construct the tent of meeting, or tabernacle. And they were to follow the instructions exactly how Moses commanded them. Exodus ends, if you recall, with the glory of the Lord descending and filling the tabernacle. So that's what happens immediately before Leviticus. Leviticus now opens with, again, more detailed instructions on how God's people are to worship God in the tabernacle. So we start with detailed instructions on the sacrifices. There is the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. These offerings were acts of worship. They were offered to God as acts of thanksgiving, they were offered to God for the atonement of sin. They were offered to God to remember the covenant between God and the one offering the sacrifice. And they were detailed. Let me just give you a sample from chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Here's Leviticus 1 3 through 9. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. There he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, and the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And then Leviticus 2, 4 through 9. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. When it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar, and the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar. And then finally from Leviticus 3, 9-11. From the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, and the priest shall burn it on the altar. And this goes on and on and on. I would say that's a very fair representative sample of everything that's contained in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. That's all it is. Detailed instructions from God to God's people on how God's people are to worship God. Then in chapter 8, we have the installation of the priesthood, which consisted of Aaron and his sons. Now remember, God set apart Aaron and his sons to be priests. Their ordination lasted seven days. And like the instructions for the sin offerings in chapters 1 through 7, these instructions were detailed. It starts with this comment in Leviticus 8:5. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And then he proceeds to clothe Aaron and his sons with these priestly garments. There is anointing oil. There is a bowl that's offered in sacrifice. Blood is applied to the horns of the altar. Part of the animal is burned. Part of the sacrifice is taken outside the camp and it's burned there. A ram is offered. Uh, Some of the blood is is placed on on body parts. We have Leviticus 8.24. It says, then he presented Aaron's sons. And Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. There are several additional details. Remember, seven-day process. And then chapter 8 ends with this verse. Leviticus 8.36 And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Moses. Finally, when we get to chapter 9, Aaron is commanded to put all these instructions, all this preparation into practice. He's commanded to perform the duties of the high priest. Leviticus 9.7 says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. So Aaron did exactly what God commanded and that's recorded in Leviticus nine twenty two twenty four. 24. And here's the response as well. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. And the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Then we come to Leviticus 10, 1 through 2. Now keep in mind everything we've just covered. Seven chapters of detailed instructions. This is how you are to worship me. Then we've got the preparation and installation of the priests. These are the people that are supposed to do it. And then we have a positive example that turned out really great. Aaron, as the high priest, performed the duties exactly as God commanded. And then we come to chapter 10, just two verses. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Do you see the connection that runs all the way from Leviticus 1.1 to Leviticus 10.2? Here are all the instructions. Here's what it looks like. Here are the people to do it. Here's a positive example. And then immediately after is a negative example. In other words, Scripture invites us to compare these two examples. Here's the right way to do it. Here's the wrong way to do it. And I'm going to sandwich these right next to each other so you can't miss it. Aaron worshipped as God commanded. Nadab and Abihu worshipped as they decided. Aaron worshipped correctly and fire consumed his burnt offering or his offering. Nadab and Abihu worshipped incorrectly and fire consumed them. So the question is, what does this teach us? What does this first nine plus chapters in Leviticus teach us? It teaches us that how we worship God is important to God. In other words, it matters. It also teaches us that all the, that God's people are to worship God according to God's word. That's what that whole nine plus chapters is about. It's, it's chapter after chapter after chapter to, to drive home that one point. Now somebody might raise... A hand of objection and say, okay, well, that's the old covenant. So far you haven't proven anything to me. Um, I get it under the old covenant. um, All that stuff was important, but none of that stuff matters anymore. We're free to do whatever we want and worship however the Spirit leads. In response, I would say, first of all, that the Holy Spirit never contradicts Scripture. So to claim to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and do something contrary to Scripture just doesn't work. But I would also respond by saying the New Testament actually does address the importance of worship according to the truth of God's word. John 4. We're going to be looking at just a couple of verses from John 4 but the background quickly is this. If you remember from John 4, this is the account of Jesus and the woman from Samaria. Jesus is on his way from Judah and he's going to Galilee Judea, going to Galilee, and in between is Samaria. Um, sometimes the Jews would take time to travel all the way around Samaria because they didn't want to go near it. Samaritans were considered unclean. They weren't considered true worshipers of God because they uh, they had invented their own place of worship and they had fallen away a long time ago. They had intermarried with with non-Jews and their, their practices were simply not in line with what God had revealed. And so they were considered unclean. So here's Jesus and he's weary from his travels. He stops at Jacob's well, sits down, and a woman from Samaria comes to draw water and he asks her for a drink. And their conversation goes back and forth on a couple of different topics. But at one point, the woman throws this out. She says, well, we worship here on this mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. And it's almost as if she's saying, you know, um, we we come from two different places. We see things very differently. And the rest of the context makes it clear that she's kind of saying, who's to say? You know, let's just agree to disagree. Jesus responds, with these words. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus uses the phrase true worshipers, which tells us what? That it's possible to be a false worshiper that there is such a thing as a, as a false worshiper. There's true worshipers and false worshipers. Well, what characterizes true worshipers? He says, worshiping God in spirit and truth. In spirit, remember, God is spirit. God is invisible and holy. He is unknowable apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual worship is offered from a transformed heart that is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Only then could someone know God and offer right worship it is impossible to correctly worship God while at the same time rejecting the son of God that just doesn't work but when we place our faith and trust in Christ we can worship with genuine sincerity and correctly in the head and the heart and truth worshiping according to Christ and his word remember God's word is truth so the only way to worship God in truth is to worship him according to his own self-revelation. We are to worship according to scripture. Anything other than what Christ has disclosed in, in his word is invented or imagined or false worship. So the conclusion we draw again from John 4 is the same one we drew at the end of Leviticus 1-10-2, and that is that the way God's people worship God still matters. And also, God's people are to worship God according to God's word. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. In other words, God has not stopped caring how his people worship Him. It still matters. Now, Christians over the centuries have garnered the reputation of being people of the book. And that book is, of course, the Bible. We say this is our only rule for faith and life. Therefore, it is also our only rule for worship. The closer we are to biblical worship, the closer we are to being true worshipers. Conversely, the further away we get from biblical worship, the closer we get to false worship. Now, the church has has looked at this, as you can imagine, for a long time. And generally, there are two camps that, that have that have formed to, to approach this subject of worship. The normative principle and the regulative principle. Here they are a couple different ways. The normative principle says, if the Bible does not prohibit something, then we can include it in worship. And the regulative principle said, says, unless the Bible commands something, we don't include it in worship. Do you see the difference? Or to put it another way, the normative says we can worship God any way we want, unless the Bible says don't. Whereas the regulative principle says we can only include something in worship that God commands. Everything else, we don't. Well, if we look at our two examples, if we look at the example of Leviticus and the example of John, and we try to apply both of these principles, we're going to see pretty quickly that the normative principle doesn't work. Nadab and Abihu were ordained priests, they were in the tabernacle, they were doing what they were supposed to be doing, except on one point, they didn't. They they deviated and did something that God did not command. And how did that turn out? Not too well. It doesn't work there. How about John 4? How about if today the the church um, decided to, as part of a worship service, offer an animal for sacrifice? We we just wanted to show what it was like or we we just wanted to honor God by by offering some sort of blood. How would that turn out? Not too well. Not too well. Any worship apart from Jesus Christ and his word is false worship both from Leviticus and from John 4, and from several other passages, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's just a couple of of highlights. It becomes clear that the regulative principle is the best approach to worshiping God. In other words, there must be biblical warrant for everything we do in worship. If the church devises her own worship, then she can't be engaging in true worship. So when we come to the New Testament, we're not going to see anything like Leviticus 1 through 7. We're not going to see chapter after chapter after chapter of detailed instructions on how to run a Sunday morning worship service. So if you're looking for that, you're going to be disappointed. It's just not there. Instead, the New Covenant instructions for worship include some explicit directives, but mostly general principles and examples, positive commands, prohibitions, and some things derived from what is called true and necessary inference. Remember, this is a valid way to interpret the Bible and to form our doctrine. And it goes like this, a valid and true inference. One is true, two is also true, therefore three must be true. You see, that that kind of a logic works when interpreting the Bible. So based on Scripture's teaching, it's helpful to be categorizing uh, worship into different bins. I'm sure we all have either in our basement or in our garage, or in our attic, or in an extra bedroom somewhere, some plastic bins where we've thrown things and we've labeled the bins so we can get organized and we can come back and and retrieve things that we need, like Christmas decorations in this box, Christmas lights in this bin, uh, Easter decorations in this bin, or whatever. They're helpful for organizing. So it's helpful maybe to think of these as worship organizing bins. Number one, elements. Elements. The New Testament presents elements, the specific parts of worship service which are commanded in the Bible. There are some things that God's word tells us must be included in a worship service. They include reading of scripture, preaching, prayer, singing, sacraments, of which there are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, offerings, and at times, oaths and vows. These are the elements of Scripture. These are the non negotiables. These are the things that we're not free to deviate from or invent or say, well, this may be important, this might not be important. No, Scripture lays these forward for us as necessary elements. The second bin is forms, the way in which the elements are carried out. So we're, we're commanded to sing. How are we to sing? Uh, are we to sing to the accompaniment of instruments or or not are we are we to sing hymns or or praise songs um, how are we to, how are we to preach? Are we to preach topically or are we to preach expositionally and, and walk through consecutive books? Are we to pray with studied free prayer or are we to pray prayers that we 've written out and prayed over or are we to recite the lord 's prayer? All these things are forms the way the elements are performed. And then finally, circumstances. These are incidental matters of necessity that demand a decision, but that are not specifically commanded in the word. For example, meeting time. Uh, We meet at 9 30 on Sunday morning. What about 11 o'clock? Sure, that's fine. That's a circumstance. Are we to meet in a brick building or are we to meet in a wooden building? Doesn't matter. That's a circumstance. It's not specified. So based on these organizing bins, based on the commands and scriptures, based on the idea and the understanding that worship still matters to God, there are some application points and we've been thinking about these. I want to lay out a few of these right now, but we're going to be covering some more of these application points in the the worship Sunday school class over the next four weeks. Number one, we should never introduce something that the Bible prohibits and we should not introduce anything that the Bible does not command. That's essentially the regulative principle. So, and I think I've used this as an illustration before. We wouldn't have a puppet show as part of the worship service. Why not? Well, because it's not commanded in scripture. That would actually be distracting. Even if it's about Daniel in the lion's den or something like that, that that's not something that the God commands. Liturgical dance. This was popular maybe 10 to 20 years ago on some mainline churches where um, uh, people in leotards would come up and they would dance to music and that would be part of the worship service. That's not appropriate. That's not an element of worship. Or or a hot dog eating contest. Uh, Come one, come all. uh, Peace Community Church. We're hungry for God's word and we're hungry for hot dogs. The pastor's going to judge a hot dog eating contest during the service. no. No, that's that not something that God has commanded and it would certainly be um, distracting and irreverent. We wouldn't want any worldly apparatuses like smoke machines or disco balls or anything that would be um, distracting from worship. Number two, worship should be simple and transferable. Simple meaning this. Historically, when the church has practiced right worship, when the, when the church has Has used only the elements that the Bible commands reading scripture, praying scripture, preaching scripture, singing scripture. The worship has been at its most powerful. On the other hand, when the church has devised her own methods, when the church has gotten away from the elements and introduced other parts, other things that don't belong in the worship service, it becomes much weaker. We can probably think of a couple examples of that. When the church invents things, when the church introduces novelty into the worship service, we're right back with Nadab and Abihu, putting something in there that that we've decided is a good idea instead of what God has commanded. So it should be simple. It should be these simple elements. It, It should be transferable. In other words, when you look at these elements... Are they transferable? Do they only work in, in suburban Chicago in 2022, or do they work anywhere? Can you, can you worship using these elements in a grass hut with no walls on a beach in the Philippines? The answer is yes, you can. You can preach the word. You can sing the word. You can administer the sacraments. Can you do this in a stone cathedral with vaulted ceilings and, and, and all kinds of uh, stained glass windows. Yes, you can do it in a place like that too. And you can do it in any language, in any culture. It's transferable. One thing to keep in mind is that no part of a worship service is ever neutral. So we need to take great care and ensure that all things complement the worship of God and not overpower it or impinge upon the purpose of worship. Number three, songs. Songs. Uh, The church would do well when choosing songs to avoid choosing songs based on personal preference. In other words, I like that song. It's probably not a good enough reason to include it in a worship service. The church should avoid shallow lyrics, overly repetitive choruses, theologically incorrect language, irreverent language, language that focuses on the self using a lot of pronouns like I, me, mine, mine, Those types of things used repeatedly are probably a yellow or or maybe a red flag. What we do want are content-heavy songs that contain solid doctrine, biblically reverent language that directs the worship of God's people towards God. I've got one example of a song that would be very appropriate to use In worship, and I'll explain why. The name of the song is To God Be the Glory. I love it already. I I love the title already. To God Be the Glory. Listen to two verses, and then let's unpack them. It says, To God be the glory, great things He has done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life in atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that we may go in. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus forgiveness receives. Do you hear all the content that's packed into that? So loved he the world that he gave us his son. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. Atonement for sin, that's Hebrews 10.12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It talked about redemption, that's Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The purchase of blood, we looked at that in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own, you have been bought with a price. That price is the blood of Christ. To every believer the promise of God, that's Galatians 3, 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The vilest offender who truly believes. We're back to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and that vice list. That follows with and such were some of you, but you were washed. Do you see how much content is packed in those two small verses from that song, To God Be the Glory? That's a, that's a God glorifying song that directs the people of God to the worship of God using scripture, using doctrine. Number four, the worship space should direct the congregation toward God and God's revelation. It has been said that as a church implements the regulative principle and uses only these elements that are found in in the Bible as God commanded, it's simple, it's powerful, and what they're doing is they're reading the Bible, they're praying the Bible, they're singing the Bible, they're preaching the Bible, and they're also seeing the Bible. There are two sacraments that the Lord has instituted. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. If we are to direct people to the worship elements that God has commanded, then these need to be visible. If you've noticed, for the past several weeks, the baptismal font has remained on the stage. That's purposeful. We want to remind everyone and draw everyone's attention to to one of the two sacraments. Our, Our table so far has only come out on Communion Sunday. We'd like to change that. And we also think if we're trying to direct God's people to the most important elements of worship, which are word and sacrament, a more substantial pulpit might be in order instead of a kind of a metal skeleton, something a little more prominent. We'd also like a permanent communion table that remains out and visible every worship service. These are a few things that we'd like to change. Number five, musicians and instruments position with or behind the congregation. So maybe we move things to the floor. Why is that? It's because the people of God should be joining voices together and praising God. And it's not to be something that is done to or for or directed at the congregation, but everyone joins together and worships God. So like I said a moment ago, nothing is neutral. And I want us to be sure that we understand this wasn't like, uh, you know, the five elders got together and and they just decided, well, I like this, so let's do this. That's not it. We got together and we said, we need to make sure that we're overseeing the church in the correct manner and leading the people to worship God in the way he's commanded. So this is the fruit of all that. And again, I want to encourage you to attend the Sunday school class over the next four weeks. We'll be laying out some more details, answering any questions, and and giving people an opportunity to support some of these improvements. Yes, the Old Covenant ceremonies, the sacrifices, the Old Covenant sign of circumcision, temple worship, that no longer matters because it's been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. But God's concern for how his people worship him still matters. It matters to him. We are to worship in spirit and truth. Jesus gave his own body and blood as a sacrifice on our behalf so that the sacrifice of animals is no longer needed. Those things have been fulfilled. They're no longer, they no longer matter. Through faith in Jesus, our sin is atoned for. We are forgiven our sins Before God, His wrath is turned away. We are given the righteousness of Christ that is needed to be made right with God. We cannot enter the kingdom of God without Jesus Christ. To be clear, if you are outside of Christ, then you are separated from God. There is no forgiveness of sins, there is no promise of eternal life. There is no spiritual blessing outside of Jesus Christ. However, in Christ, when you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have all those promises. You are assured eternal life. I would encourage anyone here today, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, turn to Him. Recognize that it's the, the relationship between a person and, and God is, is more than just going to church, or, or more than just... Um, being friendly or, or nice. It's about being made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and faith in him. It is only then that anyone can offer right and true worship of God in spirit and truth. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And in addition to the the words of truth that lead us and point to faith in your son, they also direct your church on how to worship you. Father, we ask that as a local church that desires to reside in your will and to worship you according to your commandments, that you would continue to lead, that you would continue to shape that you continue to improve how we worship you on the Lord's day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.